Professor David Kennedy, Director of the Institute for Global Law and Policy, is now our next guest here at 21.25 on SAFM. We're talking about the Global Scholars Academy in what can be described as a golden feather in the cap of Stellenbosch University's fast-expanding international collaborations. The university's faculties of law and economic and management sciences have partnered with the prestigious Harvard Law School's Institute for Global Law and Policy in the U.S. to host the Global Scholars Academy here in South Africa. This initiative, which is currently underway at Stellenbosch, brings together both distinguished and young scholars from all over the world to debate some of the world's most pressing issues in the field of international law, policy and economics. And I suppose the only question that remains, which is the first question as we engage this topic, David, thank you so much for joining us. Why would you not bring a fellow Marty in Songhez on my back to be part of this clearly beautiful dialogue engaging these pressing issues of international law, policy and economics? I mean, I am one of your own. I'm a Marty. I was at the Ohwerfgebo. Why didn't I score an invite? I'm actually feeling a bit of FOMO here. <laughs> Well, next time, next time, absolutely, would love to have you. Man, so, man. Stellenbosch was a, a a really terrific choice for us at Harvard for sponsoring the Global Scholars Academy with us, a, a world-known institution making its own struggles in the direction of diversity, engaging with the rest of Africa with a profile of world-excellent research. It was exactly the kind of institution we were hoping to partner with that could be a promising uh, partner for us as we go forward at the program. What are you looking to achieve with the Global Scholars Academy in taking it to Stellenbosch and partnering with these very strong faculties of the university and, and, and Harvard? What ultimately would you, when reflecting on this week and the work beyond this week, are you ultimately looking to establish and achieve? Well, the Global Scholars Academy aims to strengthen the hand of young scholars, not only from South Africa, but across the continent and across the world, through peer-to-peer mentoring with each other, under the guiding hand of mentoring faculty that we bring from 40 universities around the world. So the goal is really to make the academic world stronger, to strengthen the voice of folks from the global south and enable them to participate in a global conversation more effectively. So what we hope to accomplish is both establishing a a robust network of young scholars working on today's difficult problems together that bring the perspectives of South Africa together with those of India, Peru, Thailand, and the rest of the world so that experiences can be shared. That's what we're aiming to achieve. Specifically this week, January 16 to 20, in Stellenbosch, South Africa. Early on in the year, South Africa has a lot to look forward to in terms of changes in policy, policy development. In the context of South Africa and her democracy, for instance, there are some fundamental questions which I don't imagine if you are in South Africa right now, you are not yourself not engaging. I mean, we're talking about load shedding and its impact in socioeconomic development. Even the strength of democracy itself is predicated on whether or not ESCOM as an institution can deliver on her promise. There are fundamental questions in the South African society right now. Those discussions that are taking place, how much are they engaging the depth and breadth of these issues, which most certainly are the conversation in South African dinner tables, in vehicles as they move the public and so they share their experiences in terms of how they are being affected by some of the governance shortcomings, perhaps, and whether or not the legal framework and the institutions South Africa has are sufficient 
to address such shortcomings. Is something to that effect being discussed? If so, what? And how can you share some of those conversations? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that for all of the global participants, as well as those here from the region, the load shedding and the government difficulties that the country here is facing right now have been at the top of the agenda for discussion. Uh, and one of the things we found is that, you know, these are questions and problems aren't unique to South Africa. Uh, they're problems which in different forms, a variety of countries also are facing. And so one of the things we've been trying to do is work to share solutions from a variety of different locations in the hope that that would strengthen the hand of those here who are hoping to do better in the future. But it, there's no question that the general problem of government dysfunction, uh, both here in South Africa and more generally, is something that our participants from across the road, across the world, have been very concerned about all week. It's very visible here in South Africa. One can, you know, one, you know, one only needs to face the fact that just to take a kind of odd comparison, the GDP per capita of Ukraine is much lower than that in South Africa, and yet they're managing more or less to maintain their electrical grid in the face of ongoing bombardment. It's quite shocking that South Africa hasn't been able to do the same after so many years of attempting to confront the problem. Let's talk about global governance. I think what is happening in South Africa might be a microcosmic representation of what is happening. I can't think of too many nations that don't have questions within themselves asked by the people of those nations and the institutions of those nations, institutions of governance, having to ask some pretty fundamental questions, even engaging if those persons who preside in such institutions are indeed worth their salt. I mean, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is, is, is but an example. The instability um, in the European Union in, in, in the latter day, which is most pronounced by the Brexit of four or five years ago, is an indication in that regard. The emergence of global nationalism, many might even say it's fascism. What does this generally talk to in the context of global law and global policy? Well, there's certainly been a fragmentation and a series of recognitions that the fantasies we might have had that there was such a thing as global governance that made sense uh, was in many ways a fantasy of a particular moment that applied only to some countries. One of the things that we're focusing on this week is the way in which governance structures and legal structures might not simply be inadequate ways to address a problem. They might actually be part of how the problem is reproduced and structured. That requires a kind of fundamental inquiry that's often very strange for folks in the academic world. And that's what we've brought together folks in Stellenbosch uh, to learn how to do more effectively, to ask the question, how are our governance structures part of the problem rather than part of the solution, not only at the local level, but also globally? Very hard to figure that out. Uh, and it's, of course, different in every context, but there's some common themes. South Africa certainly has a story to tell. Right now, our president withdrew his particular participation in the World Economic Forum because of some of the challenges to which we've already remarked in this conversation. South Africa's global standing, the repute that she might have enjoyed or she might still enjoy, are you in a position to remark about that so that the listenership who really do have South Africa's interests at heart can perhaps get an outside perspective looking in but sufficiently invested in the interest of the typical <coughs> South African 
as we continue the conversation beyond what you are doing in Stellenbosch when, for instance, SAFM is continuing the conversation, albeit focusing on something else. But nonetheless, the, 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 the irritation or the nagging, so that, or the, the, the desire still to get to the bottom of what we are ultimately seized with continues so that we reach our solution. Can you comment on, South, on brand South Africa at large? Uh, you raise a good point. There's no question South Africa has so many friends abroad. Uh, so certainly in my part of the world who see South Africa having made all the, the changes it has been able to make, not as many as it hopes to make, I'm sure, in the last years as a real beacon of what might have been possible. And it's been a real disappointment to see the struggles that continue to afflict the country. I think folks look to South Africa for leadership on the African continent and for participation and leadership in the world. But that requires getting one's house in order. Uh, and it's been a, a big part of our conversations here to try to understand how it is that a country so well poised uh, to exercise leadership here in this region and beyond has had such a difficult time doing so. It's a, it's a, it's a sad story in some ways, but I hope it's an optimistic one mm -hmm. that it will be possible for the country to live up to its potential. To balance the equation, I think there isn't a country that doesn't have its own blemishes. And in South Africa, at least we are alive to our own and we are even quite happy to talk about them because at least that's the basis of finding the solution. Let's go back to the United States because, I mean, this is uh, essentially Stellenbosch and Harvard platform in which we are engaging. The United States herself is not without challenges, some of which are very fundamental. For instance, if we talk about climate change and all of things associated with the sustainability of the world going forward. Apples and oranges between the previous administration and the current administration. I'm looking I'm asking this question because I'm looking at some of the themes that will be and are being traversed in the context of this global law and policy um, dialogue taking place in Stellenbosch. Are we going to in this administration yet? or going forward generally as emergence as of rhetoric from Congress, the United States taking the lead as she is wont to do on matters of global importance, not least in this context, world sustainability, particularly looking at climate change and sufficient investments in that regard? Well, I think it's important that uh, Americans now can see what the world has always seen which is America is just one country with its own very deep problems and struggles. Uh, and what, however much we may like to present ourselves to the world as a country that solved everything, we've solved actually very little after many years of trying. And so uh, one of the things we bring here to South Africa is a kind of humility about that uh, and an effort to try to understand how the challenges to democratic governance, the challenges to government capability to address these problems, that we're facing in my country are not as different as one might think from those that are faced by many countries in the developing world. The challenges to democracy, uh, the challenges to the effectiveness of government in being able to address problems that it might have all good heart to try to, mm. but it's in many ways prevented from doing by a variety of different forces. So, so we're in some ways in the same soup uh, and are having as difficult a time as anyone figuring out what to do next. And that's one of the reasons why people across the world, both in the developed and the developing world, need to be participating in a common conversation about these struggles. It's not us coming to say how to do things. It's us coming to learn how a variety of other countries 
have adapted to the kinds of challenges that we're also now facing, sadly. I mean, I'm looking at the faculty that is involved here. I mean, you're talking about the many schools of thought that are brought into the same room, even the Global South and the Global North, in that proverbial sense, have been invited to participate here. What is what stands out for you? What has been striking in terms of the schools of thought? I mean, I'm just literally going to look at five names randomly. There's Flame University, Manchester University, Arizona, Nairobi, Helsinki, there's Melbourne, there's Kent, there's Tilburg, there's Harvard, there's Spetch and Partner, the organization, there's Cairo represented here, there's Stellenbosch, obviously, there's Melbourne University here. You clearly have been able to attract a sufficient variety of voices in global law and policy, and they have descended upon Stellenbosch. Why is that important, and how does it move the needle forward in the regard of global consensus? Well, let me give you an anecdote. Uh, I was walking from one venue to another this afternoon after lunch, with a, and a participant grabbed me, a young scholar from Tanzania who said, you know, I was just walking along with a, a person I'd never met before from Peru, and we're both working on the same inequality problem, and we realize, and I never had even thought about Peru, uh, that there are so many ways in which what the problems that we're facing are shared. And I really want to thank you for bringing both of us here and giving us the chance to share our experiences with one another. That's the kind of anecdote that makes me want to do this over and over, and that brings Harvard to the table and says, all right, this is something that's worth doing. It means that people realize that their problems are not unique. Uh, and then that hopefully that young colleague, as I say to all of them on the first day, will have met a colleague for lunch who will be able to share in their research going forward and say, well, what did you do in Peru? And how did it work and how did it fail? And that gives me a broader perspective on how to think about what might or might not work here in South Africa. And so also I can contribute to what you're thinking about in Peru. So the goal of the program is to create conversations like that between young scholars, all of whom, you know, you'd be surprised we had 130 people went around the room. Everyone said what they were passionate about, what they brought, what they were angry about. And everyone brought, although they were academic researchers and very serious and thinking we're here at Stellenbosch and Harvard, they all had a passion. And they all were learning how to do what they were passionate about better and help each other get better at what they wanted to achieve. And so that's really the value of this kind of educational exchange in which people who have the passion to improve their societies realize that they don't have the tools, they don't have the intellectual tools, they don't have the breadth of experience, and that can be deepened by conversation with their peers and with mentors from around the world. Mm, interesting. Um, I propose we take a break, please, Prof. David Kennedy, Director of the Institute for Global Law and Policy. He's based, of course, from Harvard Law School. 21.40 is the time. Let's take a short break, after which we continue the conversation. And immediately when the conversation resumes, we are going to the province of Limpopo with Katu. Katu is going to be our first caller, not Limpopo. My fellow coastal speakers, you're usually very guilty of saying that. It's Limpopo, the province. 21.40. <laughs> On SAFM. 21.42, time fast running out. The conversation is most glorious to have. We have Professor David Kennedy, Director of the Institute for Global Law and Policy. Very briefly, let me just give you an anecdote or rather an introduction as to his 
pedigree, really. David is the Manly O. Hudson Professor of Law at the, and Faculty Director for the Institute of for Global Law and Policy at Harvard Law School, where he teaches international law, international economic policy, legal theory, law and development, and European law. He joined Harvard Law faculty in 1981 and holds a PhD from Fletcher School at Tufts University and a JD, that's the equivalent of an LLB in South Africa in many respects, from Harvard University. He's the author of numerous articles on international law and global governance, and his research uses interdisciplinary materials from sociology, social theory, economics, and history to explore issues of global governance, policy development, and the nature of professional expertise. That's with whom I am talking, and best believe it is my honor and privilege. Katu in Limbobo, good evening, sir. Thank you so much for calling. Good evening, and how are you? I'm well, man. How's it? I'm very fine. Mm. Professor Tu, um, the question that I would like to pose or the, the, the analysis that I would like the professor to make in terms of comparisons is like globally we're exposed to similar leadership in terms of style and how they manage the, the countries. For example, in, in, in South Africa now we're talking about Parapala. In in U.S. now we're talking about the fire that has been sealed to the place where it was not supposed to be. Mm. In terms of analysis, how does the leadership generational gap erode or imply or impose to the governance of each and every leader that they they they, they lead their own countries respectively mm. in other words how relevant are these leaders how who relevant? are seemingly relatively senior to the mean age of their respective nations as population that's a fantastic question in terms of how do you arrange policy and distribute resources in line with that policy when the custodian of policy in this instance let's talk about our president who's in his or 69 or 70, President Biden chasing 80, if not already there. Does that have an impact in terms of how that, what is discussed at that level, redound to the communities and populations and become relevant for the generations of tomorrow? Prof? Yeah. Well, your caller asks a very important question. Uh, but let me place it in a broader context, which mm. is how is, how many ways are there, of which that's one, in which governments become deeply out of touch with the governing. Generational difference is one that in some countries is very significant. Uh, finance is another. So I think in my country, the gap between those who govern and those who are governed is very often more importantly connected with the role of money and finance and big business and so forth in the political world and with the role of a kind of cultural elite in what happens, then with the particular age gap that your caller has brought to our attention. Mm. But there are certainly countries where the age gap is much more important. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm 68 myself. Uh, and I understand that there are so many things that the generation has uh, have on their table, perspectives that they're bringing, that I'm simp are simply new to me and something I need to learn about. Sure. And that's one of the things, actually, that we're trying to do this week. So we bring young scholars, uh, put them together with more senior folks, and we say, well, you young scholars who are just getting going, tell us what are the problems you see. Tell us what are the passions you have. And ask, how can we help you? How can we find a way to make your perspective more visible on the global stage? So in a very small way, one of the things we're trying to do is address the challenge that your your caller brings to our attention. So, 2146, I have space for one question which I shall ask and one voice note which Brafini is now playing.
Wow, Songezo, this is bike in Cape Town. I love this initiative. I honestly love this initiative. And greetings um, to our guest tonight. My question really is, um, is this initiative, perhaps it has already looked into it. Um, how is it going, how is it envisaging its influence insofar as the comparative legal studies, in particular to um, the international law? Um, 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 how do you see this? Um, going to influence perhaps the presentation and um, obviously, you know, um, in so far as the um, jurisprudence is concerned. Baiki from Cape Town. Thank you, Sangeza. Prof, that's for you. Well, the whole international law world and global governance world has listened too little to voices outside the North Atlantic. So an important part of what we're aiming to do uh, is strengthen the hand of voices here in South Africa and elsewhere in the developing world to participate actively and bring perspectives available that we often don't hear in the North Atlantic and often are not heard for all the representatives that are sent there uh, in the global institutions that are so important in global governance. So again, uh, your caller asks a very important uh, question about the participation, engagement, and, uh, and the way in which we hear voices that are presenting a different angle on global problems. So thank you very much for the comment. Lesejo, do we have that one final caller? Babu Ngonde, Babu Ngonde, Babu Togu. Professor is listening to you, and I'm sure you guys are going to have a conversation which is very much something to which you can both relate, having both spent time. One is an American, and one spent time in America. Ngonde? First of all, I was at Harvard, not as a student, um, I work on that graph of Harvard, and I also work past MIT as I was a student in Lexington High School. Anyway, my point is that learning is hard, and for learning to occur, it must be provoked. My question to the Honorable Professor, how does the thing the ANC, in my view, will unlearn what they have learned before. For they seem to be preoccupied with the fact that they've got the solutions for, the, for South Africa, right? And we all know that nothing can be, you know, better than the truth, right? In other words, can the professor suggest something to the ANC especially, right? Or any person of influence in South Africa to have leadership, proper leadership, something that has been said by the Prime Minister of, you know, Caribbean in the National Mandela Lecture. It was lacking, so was noted by Kasia Machel. What I'm saying, can the ANC provide with lasting solutions? And lastly, bearing in mind, I don't like this idea of learning from the best practices because the best practices may not be relevant for us. In other words, what we need to do is to cleanse through our problem and find solutions. Fantastic. So I could not... Well, thank you so much. I could not agree with the caller more that the global focus on so-called best practices has been a terrible mistake all around. It completely ignores the specificity of particular contexts, which are so much more important 
in crafting solutions that will actually be effective. So on that score, we're 100%, I'm 100% in agreement with your caller. And that's part of what we're doing. That doesn't mean, though, that countries can't learn from each other, uh, that it isn't important to get a comparative perspective on other people who've tried things that one might try here, uh, that things have been tried here and might be tried there, that could be, perhaps for different reasons, successful here when they failed elsewhere, or the reverse. So I think even without looking for best practices, it's important to look for global knowledge about how problems can best be addressed on how leadership can be made effective and whether the ANC is actually able to deliver on its promises. I leave that to the citizens of South Africa. <laughs> and that, that's not a space that I think it's appropriate for a foreigner to begin commenting. Uh, but I will say uh, it's a question in every country to assess the leadership that they have and try to figure out where its strengths and weaknesses are and figure out what can be done, either through the existing procedures or otherwise, to change them. I will tell you one thing I've noticed. Mm. Maybe this is talking a bit out of school, but I was here, we did a program very similar seven years ago here in, also in Cape Town at, at, the, at UCT. And an important difference in the conversation among the South African colleagues has been visible to me. At the time, the thought that the constitutional settlement might have been in some ways too limited to serve the country was an outlier and radical position. And now it's become much more mainstream among young people and middle-aged people in legal discussions here in the country. Uh, that's a change that as an outsider I note, and I just wonder uh, what that might mean for the future of the country. If you stay long enough, you will note a couple of narratives that have shifted in the seven years that you haven't been here but the time is 21:53. i'm hoping to field at least another two calls from our callers at home let's take a short break please david after which we will field a call from katlejo in the val and hopefully another one at home 21:53, folks time is running out please call 086 triple zero on sfm of course what's happening in stellenbosch right now is harvard University Law School, specifically the Institute for Global Law and Politics, is there through its director, Professor David Kennedy, in consultation with Stellenbosch University's Faculties of Law and Economic and Management Sciences, together with a host of international scholars, effectively discussing law and global politics and how perhaps the world can change for the better when we infuse these multitude of schools in one room and then have the conversations taking place where ideas really ought to be contested. Now, in contesting their ideas, let's have them. Katlejo, you are in. Good evening. Thank you for calling. Uh, good evening. How's it, my man? Good. How's it, brother? Good. Mm. Look, uh, I just have a short question. Nothing major, but look, uh, generally there has been a push, a narrative that says globalization is progressive and that uh, the more we unite and understand our inter interdependence as, as the globe, then we're moving forward. But I, I'd like to think that uh, they are very, they, the, the process of globalization is not benign or painless in itself. And, and I'd like, uh, because my view is that, uh, you know, when we talk about the global world, uh, oftentimes uh, what is universal is actually Western canons of thought, and they are actually regarded as universal, when in fact the world is quite diverse and, and, 
uh, there are various particularities that are not necessarily mm. European or come from European channels of thought. So as and when we speak about a, a scholarly approach to, to international politics and the legal framework globally, I'd like to ask the question whether this universalism of Western canons of thought is part of the problem in terms of giving us a more authentic approach corresponding to the particularity, the problems that are particular to various uh, uh, loc- locations sure. in the globe. If no one tells you, Gadlecho, that is a fantastic question. At least hear it from me. Prof. David? Well, I was about to say the same thing. So you're, <laughs> we're ending on, on an absolutely clear note. Your caller puts his finger precisely on where we need to be looking, uh, and that is to move away from the idea that globalization means only one thing, uh, rather than it, that it can be constructed in many different ways, uh, and that uh, global solutions need to be understood to be universal rather than needing to be fit very precisely to the contours of particular locations. So actually, you need to find out who this caller is, and I need to invite him to lecture next time we're here. Okay. Brilliant. Now you've got two people who are coming through. Songezo and Gatlecho. Well, we've got his details. What I propose to do is to send you an email through the production team and certainly make sure that the conversation does not die down if that question, if anything, is to go by. I have seen your resume, Prof, and and I am intrigued and I am certainly going to take the opportunity to ask you about the reconciliation work. I mean, in 2011, you were appointed foreign advisor to Thailand's Truth for Reconciliation Commission, and now you serve as a member of the Asian Peace and Reconciliation Commission. Truth and reconciliation in South Africa have a special place in what was a divorce from our past and a marriage of what we now have, the constitutional dispensation, and the instrument that was used to try and get us to a point where we could move on from that whether successfully or not is something else, was truth. Could we at least unearth truth so that we can be in a better, infinitely better position to establish reconciliation? To the extent that your scholarship has engaged the South Africa question, what are your own views on that? I will share mine so as to give you a sense of room to maneuver. I am of the view, especially as one who has done some constitutional law and researched at our court at that level, a truth and reconciliation project for a country that for too long as South Africa was divided is not an event but a series of events that might introduce as a truth and reconciliation commission, but over time it will involve, if for instance we had kept it now, it would probably be something like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but specifically looking at socioeconomic issues and questions of race relations and inter-race relations and intra-race aspects or intra-tribal questions. What are your views from what you have seen, heard, and learned and participated, if any, on the South African constitutional project, particularly looking at the question of truth and reconciliation? Well, I think many countries saw in the first moment of hope in the South African process, a model that they thought might be a best practice and that they could follow in other parts of the world. That was a moment at which very optimistically one could imagine that that, uh, South Africa was leading the way. But I think as other countries tried it, and my own experience there has been with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Thailand, it turned out to be much more complicated than people imagined at the beginning. 
Uh, and the question of what truth is turned out to be a much more contested thing. And the question of the role of whatever truth one eventually can establish in reconciliation turned out to be more complex still. So I think we're, uh, I think the, the, the feeling that a political project of national reconciliation and progress could be somehow short-circuited by that sort of uh, ongoing particular institutional arrangement uh, was a hope that uh, I think always was doomed to be more limited than we than we wished. I'll take it. Um, it's yeah, yeah. Okay, I beg your pardon. Sorry. Oh, to bring a to bring a. It's more difficult to bring a country uh, to a new reality, uh, let alone to a new truth. Um, when you have one of the things we say about constitutions is they don't work where there's not a consensus. And this is a country without a strong consensus. Mm -hmm. uh, so that really raises a powerful question. Consensus. Great word. We will probe it further. I hope you'll lend us your time again for I've certainly enjoyed chatting with you and engaged with some very deep issues that really require us to look further in them. But for your time and everything else, Prof, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.